Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are, we are uh, getting towards the tail end of our series through both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Our time in 2nd Thessalonians, just because of the brevity of the book, certainly won't uh, equal our amount of time in 1st Thessalonians. But Lord willing, this week and next week, just a couple messages left from 1st Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're a little bit backwards this morning because I had prepared this message to preach two Sundays ago, but we canceled and we didn't do a live stream. And then last week we canceled services but did do a live stream, but Pastor Matt was already scheduled to preach the next passage. And so we're actually, we're going to hit the two verses that, that, uh, that uh, come before what Pastor Matt preached last week. And that's verses 12 and 13 of First Thessalonians chapter 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But before we get there, I want to wish you all a very happy new year. Now that we're already 16 days into it. And, uh, and uh, I trust uh, if you have any New Year's resolutions, uh, that they are in full swing and they haven't fizzled out yet. They haven't fizzled out yet, have they? Um, I had the privilege of taking a, a seminary course with, with uh, Donald Whitney. And uh, some of you may know him. He, he wrote a book called uh, uh, The Spiritual Disciplines. But he wrote an article a, a, ways, uh, a while back called 10 Questions for a New Year. And I want to look over these 10 questions just as a way to orient us for the new year. But there's one question in here that's going to segue nicely into our, our, uh, our, the sermon this morning. So uh, they'll be on the screen for you, the 10 questions for a new year. Uh, the first one, what's one thing you can do this year to increase your enjoyment in God? Number two, what's an impossible prayer you can pray? Three, what's the most important thing you could do to improve your family life? Number four, in which spiritual discipline do you most want to make progress this year? Number five, what's the single biggest time waster in your life and how can you redeem the time? Number six, What's the most helpful new way you could strengthen your church? Number seven, for whose salvation will you pray most fervently this year? Number eight, what's the most important way, by God's grace, you will try to make this year different from last? Number nine, what one thing could you do to improve your prayer life this year? And then number ten, what single thing can you plan to do this year that will matter most in ten years and in eternity? So again, those are 10 questions just as we kind of face the new year together. And if you, if you haven't picked out a New Year's resolution, maybe you don't do that sort of thing. I think it's good for us, all of us, to have goals. Something we can measure our lives by. Um, and, you know, I think picking out maybe one of these, uh, I picked out a, a couple of them I want to work on. And, and uh, just, just implementing one, something simple, just maybe even one thing you want to change this year. God can do a lot, uh, you know, through answering these questions. So, you know, I mentioned that one of these questions kind of brings us to the passage we're going to look at this morning, and it's question number six, which is still up there. It's on the top. What's the most helpful new way you could strengthen your church? I love that question. And I'll be honest, it's not a question I've really ever asked myself or been taught to ask, but that's a good question. As we enter into this new year, for everybody sitting in here, And for those joining us online, if they're not able to be with us, 
What's, what's the most helpful way, new way, I like new, we better include that word new, right? What's the most helpful new way that you could strengthen Calvary Baptist Church this year? And with that, I want to turn to our passage this morning. Because when you look at number six, you could argue that both the passage that Pastor Matt preached last week and the two verses that we're going to look at today, you could call a, a, a New Year's resolution for the church. Again, Matt already preached uh, the second part of this passage. And the Apostle Paul here in, in these verses uh, is, is firing off a lot of, in, in kind of staccato fashion, uh, a lot of different responsibilities, a lot of different commands, a lot of different, different ways that God's people are to look more like Jesus. They're extremely practical. Most of them, again, already been addressed. We're backing up to verses 12 and 13. Let's read that now. I'll read it, verse 12 and 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Where Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And then it goes into what we heard an excellent message on last week. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted. But here we are in verses 12 and 13. Now, verses 12 and 13 gives us an important way we can answer question number six. Because I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this. No church is stronger than its pastor-people relationship. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that no church is stronger than its pastor-people relationship. Now, of course, there are other things that, play, play, that have play here when it comes to the strength or the health or the effectiveness of a church or whether or not a church is strong or weak or effective or ineffective. So I'm not saying this is the only consideration. But as I've thought through this, I, I can't think of many instances where you could have a poor, weak, pastor-people relationship and at the same time have a strong church. I don't think that church exists. In most cases, if the relationship between pastor and people is weak, the church will be weak. And what I mean by that is ineffective or unstable. So when the people of a church are dominated by a critical spirit or a critical attitude, a critical deportment towards their pastor, it's going to be a weak church. Any church dominated by an incessantly suspicious spirit towards its pastor is going to be a weak church. Any church dominated by resistance and or even a rejection of spiritual authority will be a weak church. No church is stronger than its pastor-people relationship. Now I want you to think, you know, we've, we haven't met in a while, but think about kind of the context in which Paul is writing. Paul is writing to a, a church of brand new believers in the town of Thessalonica. They're largely not a Jewish population, so they, they wouldn't really have grown up around the scriptures. These are just kind of, they're, they're Greeks, they're, they're new to the faith, they're new to all this, and, and Paul is writing to this church of only new believers. So there's, there's no veteran believers in this church, there's no seminary grads in this church. As far as we can tell, it's probably pretty much 100% brand new followers of Jesus Christ. So the question is, where did they get their pastor? And Paul was there for a while, and, and perhaps there were some Jewish people that kind of knew the issue, the, the, kind of what's going on. 
No seminary grads. You couldn't call the local Bible college and ask for, you know, for the, the, you know, the, the a guy to be sent to them. But I want to show you Acts chapter 14, verse 23, because I think it helps us understand how they found pastors. Because Acts 14, 23 says, uh, Paul said, or, or Luke is commenting on how things were done. It says, and when they, he's talking about Paul, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So it, it would seem that Paul's custom was this. He would go into a town, he'd win a bunch of people to the Lord, he'd establish a church. And in accordance with the apostolic authority that he had, Paul led the way in identifying who in that church would fit the mold of being, or fit the qualifications uh, of being a pastor. And he would actually appoint the pastor. Now, obviously, Paul couldn't just keep going back to all the churches and appoint every pastor thereafter. So the church would eventually take the reins and appoint their own pastors. So Paul most likely, as he looked at these new believers, he probably, he probably either found one that maybe, maybe, maybe there was a belie- uh, uh, an older believer there, or maybe there was someone more familiar with scriptures, maybe there was someone who was just kind of, the, kind of really growing in the Lord, really showing maturity, and, and that's who Paul would say, this, this, this is the pastor. But apparently, there were those in the Thessalonian church struggling to esteem and respect the pastors in the church. Now, if you remember, Timothy, that's Paul's companion, he was, he was sent to Thessalonica. We read that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul was sent there, or Paul sent Timothy there to figure out what was, how the church was doing. Timothy comes back and he gives a report. And, 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 and Timothy must have said that one of the areas in which this church needed encouragement and exhortation was in the relationship uh, uh, between the church and its pastors or elders. From what these verses imply, the church had trouble understanding the worth of those who were placed in this leadership position. And so Paul is going to address them in a, in a brotherly way. Uh, so he says, we ask you, brothers. He's really coming at them with, with, a, very, with a very friendly uh, sort of thing. But as, as one commentator put it, even though it's brotherly, it's, it's big brotherly. So there is going to be a, um, um, an angle of ex- strong exhortation here in these verses as we've read. But this whole section is a, is a section on the church family, and, and as Warren Rearsby puts it, these two verses refer to as what's, uh, what he refers to as family leadership. God has ordained leadership for the church, and through the gifts of the Spirit, God enables men to serve as under-shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God has revealed a number of responsibilities for the pastor, and we even had a sermon on that uh, several weeks ago when we looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul comes and he says, I worked and I labored in my conduct. And, and I talked and I gave a message to you on what you should be looking at when you look at me. You look at us, you look at your three pastors here. But here Paul turns it around and he looks at you. And he says, Well, what then what then is the what then is the responsibility of the people of the church to the pastor, to the to the leader in the church? God has very clearly pointed out qualifications for pastors, 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. This is one of those even few passages we see where God gets very clear on the responsibilities that church members have in relationship to uh, their pastors. So we're going to look at the three responsibilities every church member has in relation with their pastor. And in your bulletin, I say three ambitions. I was struggling which word to use. Uh, Really, it's responsibilities, but really it's kind of an ambition. You should be ambitious uh, to do these things. 
And the first one is, the first responsibility is that the people are to respect their pastors. Respect their pastors. Now this word respect that we see in verse 12, it, it actually means to know and appreciate. That's kind of the idea of the word. To know and to appreciate. D. Edmund Heber, when he comments on this passage, he says, Ministers are often urged, and rightly so, to know their members. But here, the members are called upon to know their leaders. And surely, he says, he continues on, and surely much of the tension that at times develops between pastors and members would be dissipated if the members would learn to know and appreciate the duties and ministries of their spiritual leaders, end quote. So when he says here respect, and he's talking about to know, it's, it's a, it's a beyond-the-surface knowledge that leads to kind of this deep, deep-seated respect and appreciation for the pastor, We live in a culture because, again, he's using the word respect, so it's simply not just simply to know, but it also carries the idea of submission to authority. And so to know, to appreciate, it carries the idea of submission to authority. And we live in a culture that resists most kind of authority. And perhaps you, perhaps you, you someone in here, your, your tendency is to resist authority. That any authority, that, whether it's at school, whether it's, whether it's in the community, whether it's at your job, whether it's in the church, I mean, you just, you just have the tendency to want to resist all authority. Even spiritual authority. But we need to remember that even our king, Jesus Christ, submitted himself to authority. And, we, and when we submit to the authority that God has put in place, we are submitting to God. When we obey God, we're submitting to God. And so as a concern, that's, that's for any authority that God places over us, as long as they're not leading us into sin, of course. But as it concerns elders and pastors, there's also another verse from Hebrews chapter 13, and maybe you're familiar with this verse. Hebrews 13, 17 says, uh, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, which leaders is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the ones that keep watch over your souls. These are the ones that are going to have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So this is kind of carrying the same idea of, of respecting, knowing, appreciating. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. They are your, they are your spiritual leaders. They're trying to keep watch over your soul and help you and grow you. Because we're going to have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Respected and obeyed unless it's clear they are out of God's will. And there are stories going around of pastors who are clearly out of God's will and the people just didn't know what to do. You have the authority to fire a pastor who's out of God's will. Absolutely you do. But to help this whole idea of understanding and appreciating and knowing the pastor, Paul actually gives, in verse 12, he gives the threefold function of the pastoral office to help you, to help, to help uh, to help you understand what the duties and ministries of the spiritual leaders are. Number one is they labor among the people. So we ask you, brothers, respect those who, number one, labor among you. And the word labor, they put in strenuous effort to faithfully carry out pastoral duties. Being a, being a pastor takes hard work. There's great responsibility in pastoral work, but there's also great difficulty. The faithful pastor puts forth great effort in carrying out his duties for the church. 
Secondly, they, don't, they not only labor among the people, they lead the people. Notice here we have the phrase, uh, they labor among you and are over you in the Lord. So the pastors are to give spiritual guidance and leadership to the people of the church and its ministries. They lead, they protect, they care for the church. And the people of the church, the ministries of the church, they want to see this church led in a way that glorifies God. But we can't miss the phrase, in the Lord. Okay, It's not just they labor among you and they're over you, as if they have like unrestrained authority over everything, but they're over you in the Lord. Over you in the Lord. Their leadership authority is in the Lord. That is to say, their leadership is concerned with the spiritual matters of the church. Their authority derives only from what God enables. I keep saying there. Should I say my? I, don't, I, I can never figure out what exactly to say here. This is, this is like one of those sermons I'm preaching to you, but I'm the one preaching it. And, and so, so we're just going to use their, the pastors, stuff like that. Um, the pastor's authority, my authority, derives only from what Jesus enables. So pastoral authority exercised properly fulfills what Jesus says in 1 Peter chapter 5 where um, Peter commands uh, the, the pastors, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So Paul is saying he wants to shepherd, feed, care for the people, and you need to make sure you are overseeing that church. But he says not under compulsion. Not because you have to. Not because like, ah, oh, it's a drudgery. Just biding my time. I just, I, can't, I, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. No, but willingly. As God would have you, not for shameful gain. So the motive here can't be for, for shameful gain, but eagerly, not dom- here's that. So not domineering. You're not going to dominate everybody. You're not going to police everything that's going on in their lives. You're not going to be domineering, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, we have a chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. So pastors are to provide both leadership and spiritual care in the church. So function number one is they labor among the people. It's hard work. And it's a work many times filled with great difficulty. And they lead the people. They are the spiritual overseers of the church and its ministries. And then number three, everybody's favorite, and they admonish you. This word means it's not... This word doesn't mean just to give somebody information. It really it means to correct someone who's in error or heading toward error. It means to call attention to a fault or a defect, to, to, go, it, to go and say, this is, this is wrong. This word is never used to simply just give information like, uh, it's, it's wrong to do this. No, it's, it's, it's more of a, it's a wrong for you to do this. It's more like, remember, uh, David, after he committed the sin, uh, the adultery and the murder, and Nathan the prophet comes in and gives him that little parable to try to help David see how atrocious his actions are. And David gets all mad at this, this story about a guy who, who stole a lamb and slaughtered it from a family. And, and David's like, that guy deserves to die. And what does Nathan say? He points out and says, you're the man. And that's kind of what this word admonishment means. It's kind of a finger in the chest saying, you're the man. You're doing something wrong. Now, pastors aren't perfect. No amens. Okay, that's good. Okay, we'll go from there. (laughs) Pastors aren't perfect, and we too need to be admonished. This is not a, necessarily the only people who need admonishment are the people not on the stage. Every pastor pastors while 
battling their own flesh. And they're not above being admonished. And we must, just as willing as we are to give admonishment, we also must be willing to receive it. But nonetheless, one of the functions is to admonish. And you can just ask yourself, do, do, do any of my pastors, we have three pastors here, do any of my pastors at the church, at Calvary Baptist Church, do they, do they, have, the, do they have my full attention and my full permission and my full just permission to admonish me, to come to me and say, that's not right? This is the nature in, of pastoral duties and ministries. And no, it doesn't cover everything. It doesn't answer every question but they labor among the people, they lead over the people, they, they leave over the peop- lead over the people in the Lord, and they admonish the people. They are to be marked by their strenuous effort, leadership and care, and their moral influence. As Warren Wearsby reminds us, the pastor can't just be a buddy, because that'll weaken his authority. But he also can't only be among the people with authority, that turns him into a dictator. So that's why the, the, Paul says here they are both, they labor among you, they're among the people, but they're also over. Not just a buddy with no authority, neither just somebody with all authority that's a dictator, but somebody who is among the people and over them in the Lord. So God commands the people of the church to respect their pastors, to know and appreciate the work they do. What are some practical things you can do before we move quickly on? We won't spend as much time on the last two here. What are some things, practical things you can do? I just thought of a few. Number one, you get to know, get to know your pastors. Get to know us. The better you know your pastors, the more appreciation you will have for them. And I think that applies anywhere in life. There have been people, my best friend in high school, I remember, when, we, when he first joined the high school I was at, I was like, this, like, he was like furthest down the line of anybody I would ever hang out with or get to know or anything like that. Just, you know, looking from afar, it just seemed like, you know, some doofus that I'd never want to have anything to do with. Uh, and it turns out I was a doofus as well, so we just, went, we just were perfect for each other. You know, once we got to know each other, we became best friends. And even to this day, he's, he's a worship pastor at a church in uh, Nebraska and, uh, you know, still in touch to this day. So get to know your pastors. Follow them. Agree with them unless they are obviously leading the church in error or folly. Talk to them. Talk to them. Uh, it's easy to hope things just eventually get to the pastor. And, you know, we hear a lot of things, you know, third, fourth, fifth hand or whatever. But, you know, we, we want you to know that we, we want to talk to you. We want to hear from you. And we want to get to know you as well. And here's another thing that I thought of that you could do to, to respect your pastor. And that is teach your children to love and respect their pastors. Teach your children, not that the guy up here is some, you know, greatest, most perfect man without any faults or anything like that. But we can teach our kids that this position of pastor is important because the church is important. And not because the man himself is gleefully great or anything like that, but that God has put a position in the church to oversee and care for his people. Which kind of leads right into the next couple, and which is why I won't spend as much time on the next two, because it kind of all bleeds together. But the next, the second, the, the second kind of part of this, the second responsibility, not only to respect 
people have uh, to respect their pastors, but secondly, to value them. So notice verse 13 says, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Esteem in the highest regard. So members of the church aren't just to know the work a pastor does, but they are also to value them. And notice it says here, because of their work. Because of their work. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying, he's saying don't value the pastor because he's in some way perfect. Or because he's like a superior breed of humanity. He's not saying you should value them because of their great personality, their humor or wit or anything else. God is saying, God is, God is concerned with the work being done. And so he says, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. God is concerned with the work that's being done. The place of value is not necessarily on the man himself, but on the position. And Paul writes this because of the dignity and usefulness of the office a pastor fills. And actually, we see an example of this uh, from the Galatian church. When Paul wrote to the Galatian church, it's kind of the, the, we kind of see them both respecting and valuing Paul. Where he says, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. He says, for I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So you kind of get this picture in the, Gal- in the church of Galatia. I mean, that's a whole other sermon. But in the church of Galatia, how they received Paul, how they esteemed him, how they valued him. Now, again, this doesn't mean that a pastor can't be fired because he's incompetent in handling the word or he's incompetent in doctrine or because he commits a moral failure that disqualifies him from office. But today, in today's America, in today's American church, many pastors are getting chased out of their churches not because of doctrinal differences, not because of moral failure, although those do exist, Not because they're bad preachers or false teachers. Many pastors are getting chased out of churches in today's America, even amongst our circles, if we want to use that word, because of power struggle in the church, because of a failure to esteem their pastors. And I say this, I'm part of a Facebook group of of pastors, and it's 1,200 pastors from around the country. Uh, But all all like-minded in many of the pastors, pastoring churches like-minded to that of ours. And it is, it is a regular post, a regular post, that some pastor is asking for prayer because he's being run out of a church by deacons longing for power, by a family in the church that has more pull and decisions than he does, by someone just looking to keep the pastor in check. And the reasons for being run out of the church. And again, there's always more to the story. I, I get that. I think a lot of these men are just looking at the church saying, I'm here trying to shepherd and trying to lead, but, but the people don't have my back. The deacons don't have my back. This family doesn't have my back. This person doesn't have my back. And it's just causing turmoil in the church. If a pastor is chased out of his pulpit, there should be some hearty biblical reasons behind it. Because what is a pastor? A pastor is a shepherd. A pastor is, what does a shepherd do? He's called to feed God's sheep. And he feeds God's sheep with God's word. 
He's equipped by God to lead and feed God's people. Does that mean he's smarter than everybody in the church? No. I am not the smartest one in this room. Still no amens. Good. Got that. I'm not the funniest one. Uh, I don't know. I'm, no, uh, I'm not the funniest. It's just, but, but God has equipped the pastor to lead and feed God's people. And that's why divine truth has to permeate every ministry. That's why divine truth permeates this pulpit. That's why the pastor oversees all ministries. Am I over all ministries as the, as the senior, the lead pastor? Yes. Am I dictating every decision? Absolutely not. I would, I'd go crazy if every decision on every single thing that happens, which is why we have great servants. One way you can help strengthen your church, we have great servants that are strengthening this ministry with their, with their selfless giving of their time and efforts and abilities. And for all of you, I'm thankful for that. But the pastor wants every ministry to be a place where the sheep are fed, cared for, edified, equipped, and honoring to the Lord. As a pastor... In this office, we are, we're feeding the sheep, and that's why, that's why there's value. The work is feeding the sheep. It's by the divine truth that we permeate every ministry and the sheep grow and are fed. It's by divine truth that the gospel, that sinners are saved and, and brought to an understanding of the gospel and are converted to Christ. And that's why we preach the gospel, And this isn't a gospel passage, but if you don't know what the gospel is, the gospel is the good news that though you are dead in your trespasses and sins, God was willing to make you alive in Christ Jesus. He died for your sins and rose again. And anyone who places their faith in the Lord Jesus has their sins forgiven in eternal life. You're bought out of the slave market of sin. You're brought into an adoption of God's family. That's what divine truth does. Through divine truth, we learn God's power and providence, his plans and his purposes. And Paul is writing to a church, and it's been the church throughout history in many different times, many different ways. And, we, and, and every church is, is, is tempted with these things. Of course, this is what Satan, Satan would want to do this, right? He'd want to he'd he'd cause a church and a pastor and people to have differences. He'd want to cause a pastor to jump off the rails, you know, as far as doctrinally. He'd want false teachers to come into the church. When it comes to the people, he'd want the people to, to, to lose their respect and their honor and their value of the office and the work. Esteem and love. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. This is some sort of, Paul is talking about there's some sort of an affectionate, yes, even feeling for those who serve as pastors because of their work. So this is a very objective evaluation. Again, it's on the basis of the work they are doing. Now, the pastor is not to be a people pleaser. His goal is to be approved by Christ and not people, but maybe you, maybe you know this already, but there, there are few relationships, there are few relationships that I've experienced that reach the joyous highs and the sorrowful depths of the pastor-people relationship. There are few things that can match the, the joy for a pastor than knowing his church appreciates him and has confidence in him. Again, I want to be careful here. I'm not up here 
trying to say that we should, that's why we're doing it. We're doing it for the, to please man and to make sure you, you like us and all this stuff. That's, that's not at all the motive for this ministry. I'm just simply saying there, is, there, is, there are few relationships that can reach the joyous heights and the sorrowful depths of the pastor-people relationship. Now, the only way in which the pastor is to obtain this love, again, is as it concerns his office. He is to be faithful. He is to be affectionate. He's supposed to be a blameless minister of the Lord with a clear conscience and godly character. That is on the basis on which he is to win the favor of people, so to speak. That's what the pastor owes the church. I owe you. Your three pastors, Pastor Matt, Pastor Kyle, and myself, we owe you diligent, faithful labor, a clear, conscience, godly character. In the church, we say there's church anything that owes us, according to this passage, is respect, esteem, and to live in peace. Before we get there, John MacArthur comments, when he kind of summarizes this, he says, God has called pastors and set them apart for the important work of leading his church. I'm going to get, the list will be up there. He kind of lists a number of different things about what that looks like, kind of summarizing everything we've already talked about. The people under them are to lovingly acknowledge their ministry labors, greatly respect them, overlook their non-sinful human frailties, and I know there are many, speak well of them, encourage them, and give their best for them. Does that describe you? Does that describe you? When I got hired by the church a year ago, a little over a year ago, you know, there was, there was the qualifications for a pastor that was put on there as, as far as uh, requirements for fulfilling this office here at Calvary Baptist Church. And they were listed out, those qualifications for being a pastor. And I had to look at that list and say, does that describe me? And so I'm asking you, as a, as a, as a person at Calvary Baptist Church, as a church member, does this list describe you? Because the final thing is that amongst all of this that's going on, the, the, the kind of last little thing Paul says here is be at peace among yourselves. So both, so now he kind of brings in pastors on this. Be at peace with each other. There's no peace in a church without right relations between leaders and members. Both members and leaders share in the responsibility to live at peace among each other. The people are to fulfill their responsibilities of this passage. The pastors are to fulfill the responsibility as shepherds that God has laid out in a number of places throughout the New Testament. And when both happens, it leads to unity, peace, and health within the church. I want to point out an important, an important verse on peace Unity when it comes to the church is from Romans chapter 14. Paul concludes a passage he's talking about where he says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And I bring that, there's all the, of all the verses we could talk about when it comes to peace. I bring this up because many times what causes division in a church is that we turn the kingdom of God into a matter of eating and drinking. Now, I share this illustration with my wife's permission, but just the other day, Amber and I, <laughs> you know it's going to be good, right? Uh, Amber and I were, were having a, a discussion about some issues that one of our vehicle w was having, and we were discussing uh, what the cause of the problem was. 
And I thought for sure, well, you know, here's, here's this and this and this, you know, that's going on. And, and called a friend of mine who's familiar, yeah, making this noise, doing this, you know. And, and Amber said, well, no, I remember this happened before, and here's what it was. And I'm saying, no, that's not it, because this isn't happening. And we're, here we are, we're kind of going back and forth, both sharing our, our, you know, our views on this thing. Until I, I finally, in the middle of that, in the middle of that conversation, uh, <laughs> that conversation, I said, I said, listen to us. We're both talking about something neither of us have any clue about. (laughs) Let's just call the guy down the street who knows, and we'll get it in the shop tomorrow morning is where it's going. And as humorous that is, that, that can often be what dominates a relationship. And those are humorous times. And Amber was humble in, in, in caring in that whole conversation, but when, when a relationship becomes all about the eating and drinking, so to speak, and that's what dominates, and that's what the kingdom of God turns into, as far as we perceive it, or what's perceived. And so, while, while Romans 14 doesn't address the pastor-people relationship directly, it certainly applies. Arguments over either petty differences or Whatever should be held to a minimum. If the issue at hand doesn't threaten biblical fidelity or building up, or doesn't threaten the building up of the body of Christ, we shouldn't quarrel over it. Which is what quarreling, disputing, grumbling, resentment, all those are peace robbers. And we're to strive for peace. Now, the last thing I would want to say, I'd want to say something and just ask a question. This passage is not a, necessarily a who's in charge sort of passage. Although it's very clear he's calling the pastors leaders of the church. But the attitude is here isn't Paul just saying, okay, let me tell you who's in charge and who calls all the shots and all this stuff. He's talking about something much deeper than that. He's talking about an attitude that the people have towards their pastor. And so when it comes to your attitude towards your spiritual leaders, your pastors, your church leaders. What's your, do you fulfill these? Have you fulfilled your responsibility in these? These commands are a means of rescue and of life for the church because we know any church not following this, just like any pastor who's not following his responsibilities, means destruction for the church. And so God gives us these commands not as a way to put anybody in their place necessarily or to, or to say who's got dictatorship over the church or anything like that. He's giving this as a means of rescue in life because he knows our hearts. And so I'll close with what's your attitude towards your church leaders, your pastors at Calvary Baptist Church? And may we all strive to be at peace among ourselves. Let's pray. Father, I... I thank you for the opportunity to preach this passage, and and uh, Lord, um, I pr- I thank you for I thank you for Calvary Baptist Church and the people here. I thank you for their love and their appreciation. But Lord, nonetheless, this this you've brought us this passage at this time for a reason. Lord, certainly certainly there there may be those who are who are resistant to any sort of spiritual leadership and. And Lord, I just, I'm not, uh, not going to stand up here and, and parade around 
what I deserve or anything like that because, Lord, I'm a sinner and uh, I deserve hell, but you've saved me. And, Lord, I just thank you for the privilege of being a pastor here. I pray, Lord, that if there is any, uh, any, any spirit, uh, any atti- I say spirit, attitude, any sort of um, mindset that permeates this church that would cause division, whether it's on the pastoral side or the people side, God, we just pray that by your grace through the Lord Jesus that you would squelch it this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.